So we are uh, wrapping up this series on Paul today, and this is a, uh, actually we cover a lot of ground on this today, and so this is a call to be faithful. The, the last bit of his life is he's come back to Jerusalem and then he's arrested and ends up going to Rome. And I'm just going to tell you, you have a, in your insert, you have a, a place to write on, and, and some of these scripture passages, I'm going to kind of fly through, so you might want to write some of those references down if you actually want to have enough time to read them, because uh, I'm going to be moving pretty fast through some of them today. I'm going to remind you that before he goes back to Rome, he's, he's coming back to, I mean, to Jerusalem from Corinth, and, and when he gets to Corinth, uh, he's telling them that, uh, you know, imprisonment, uh, bad thing, uh, you know, uh, await him, persecution, imprisonment, await him. And, and uh, Luke writes, when we heard this, we and the people there in Corinth urged him not to go to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of Jesus. You hear this absolute commitment uh, in his voice as he speaks to them. If you look at the timeline, you can see that he goes back to uh, Jerusalem. He's arrested there in AD 57, not long after he gets there. Uh, he spends two years in prison there in Caesarea, and, uh, and then it takes about a year for the journey to Rome from there. Uh, spends a couple of years in house arrest in Rome, and then we're going to talk a little bit about there's some undefined time in, uh, in there in his life where we're not really sure what was going on, and then he's finally executed in AD 65. When, when Paul, though, when, he, when he's talking to the Corinthians and he's telling them this, and they're they're saying, no, no, don't let this be the case, don't go, and all that. I mean, it's interesting because he has previously written to them, <clears throat> and he said, are, are they ministers of Christ? I am talking like a madman. I am a better one. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless floggings and often near death, five times I have received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked for a night and a day. I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from bandits, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers and sisters, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, hungry and thirsty, often without food, cold and naked. And besides other things, I am under daily pressure because of my anxiety for all the churches. So, so he writes this to the Corinthians, and I'm thinking, you know, if you want to make a witness to somebody, is this really what you want to tell them? I mean, it reminds me of Steve Irwin when he used to have his TV show, you know, and he would, uh, danger, 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 right? I mean, it's like, boy, this, I mean, yeah, okay, so why don't you become a Christian and you can get lashed and thrown and beaten and stoned? And I mean, you know, it's, it's like, wow, uh, that's doesn't sound real appealing to me. Don't know about you. Um, thankfully, most of us will not be called to face anything like this. Uh, but what it does do is help you understand the absolute commitment that Paul had, uh, this drive, and, and that he understood that wherever he goes, he was going to face persecution, he was going to face hardship, and he was absolutely committed to do it anyway. And, and I wonder, you know, in our much easier situation, how often we have anywhere near that level of courage and commitment. Let's pray. Mighty God, come and uh, pour out on us this morning a little bit of the courage that Paul had. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. 
So, so Paul leaves Corinth, uh, goes to Jerusalem, and when he gets there, of course, he's first he's greeted very warmly. Uh, they're glad to see him. Uh, he meets with the, uh, the Jewish uh, Christians in Jerusalem, with the church in Jerusalem. He brings them the offering that they have taken up, and they receive that with gladness. Uh, and then he tells them about how all these churches have been planted all over Asia Minor and into Greece and, and how they're doing and growing and flourishing. And the initial response is very positive and quickly turns. Uh, so after he shared all this news with them, uh, when they heard it, they praised God. And then they said to him, and, and you know, somebody once told me if you put but in a sentence, it means the first part of the sentence isn't really true. Uh, you can almost hear that here, you know. And, and they praised God, but then they said to him, I mean, you hear the, the turn. You see, brother, how many thousands of believers there are among the Jews, and they are all zealous for the law. They have been told about you. You get that? They have been told about you that you teach all the Jews living among the Gentiles to forsake Moses and that you tell them not to circumcise their children or observe the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Now, I think that's a really interesting statement from the, the Jewish Christians there in, in Jerusalem because remember, they were in that conversation with him, right? Remember a few weeks ago we talked about the Jerusalem Council? I mean, Paul came and he, and he met with them and talked about how do we take the gospel to the Gentiles? And, and it was the Jerusalem Council that made the decision and sent the word to the Gentile churches. And it seemed to the Holy Spirit and to us that you should not be saddled with any crushing burden, but be responsible only for these bare necessities. Be careful not to get involved in activities connected with idols. Avoid serving food offensive to Jewish Christians, blood for instance, and guard the morality of sex and marriage. These guidelines are sufficient to keep relations congenial between us and God be with you. Paul didn't make that up. It wasn't just Paul's idea. That was the whole council. They all got together and they talked and they prayed and they discerned together what God's will was. And they together decided to lift the, the ritual kinds of demands of Judaism from the Gentiles while holding in place the moral laws and the religious laws that were necessary. And, and, and so this is a decision from the council. And, and, and Paul comes back to Jerusalem and they act like, oh, well, you know, we, we don't know what you're talking about, Paul. I mean, uh, he, he really is, you know, kind of unfairly treated in this. Uh, people have been told, you know, apparently people have been told, there's rumors going around on the gossip mill, that Paul has forsaken Moses and the law, and that's not at all what is going on, and it's certainly not what the Jerusalem council intended. When, uh, when they come together, they're, they're very much living into the new covenant, and they understand this, uh, reaching back into the Old Testament, uh, the passage from Jeremiah, which talks about the new covenant, where where God says, you know, I'm going to put my law within them and I'll write it on their hearts. Instantly, this is one of those if you want to write it down. Uh, I'll put my law within them and write it on their hearts. I'll be their God, they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. I mean, th this understanding of this new covenant wherein the law is no longer what brings you to God, but rather that when you encounter God, God puts the law within your heart as a way of living in response to God's love. And that new covenant is recognized when uh, Jesus is at the uh, Last Supper with his disciples. And he says, you know, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. That's something we repeat every time we serve communion in this place. This understanding that, that it's not that the law has become irrelevant or Moses has become irrelevant, but rather that we, we understand the covenant differently, that now God's love places that within us and we live it out in response to God's love, not as a way to earn God's love. 
And Paul certainly wasn't intending for them to simply leave behind all of the law and the prophets. Uh, toward the end of his life, he's going to write to his protege, Timothy, and say, <clears throat> As for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have known the sacred writings that are enabled to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, when Paul writes this to Timothy, and he talks about the sacred writings in Scripture, he's talking about what we know as the Old Testament. Because remember, the New Testament's still under construction at this point. It's not, it's not done. He's talking about the Old Testament passages, that all the, these are sacred writings that instruct you, and they're useful for teaching and for reproof and for correction, for growing in faith. This is, this is the... the, the a whole uh, you know meaning and importance of scripture and it's it's inspired um, the word in greek is theonoustos uh, god breathed or inspired uh, it's the only place in scripture that that word in greek appears however timothy and timothy's uh, people that he was ministering with would have been reading the old testament in greek uh, because the Septuagint was the most commonly available version at that time. And so they would have known this passage from Genesis uh, in the Greek. Uh, then the Lord God, Theos, formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed nasteo into his nostrils, the breath, panama, of life, and the man became a living being. So they would have connected the words from Genesis 2.17 with what he's written in Timothy and would have understood that when he says, uh, all scriptures inspired, all scriptures God breathed. And in the same way that God breathed life into the clay, God has breathed life into the scripture. Not that uh, God took people's hands and, you know, had them, you know, held their hand while they wrote, but rather that the life of God was present in them and in their minds and their hearts and their spirits as they wrote that to guide their thoughts and their directions and the words they wrote. And, and that in the time since then, the life of God had been moving in the lives of the rabbis and the scribes and the councils as they looked over those scriptures and said, which one of these speak to us? That the life of God had guided that whole process so that the, the words of the scripture speak into our lives. Not as a way of earning God's love, but as a way of responding and living out God's love. So, so when the people came and they said, oh, Paul was saying this, that, and the other, they were taking what he was doing and they were twisting it to mean something entirely different than what Paul intended and what Paul was actually saying. And it's really easy to point fingers at people back then and say, oh, well, we know what they were doing, but the truth is we still do those things, don't we? We, we still do those. We take other people's words and we make them say what we want to when we want to move things around and we twist meanings and we talk about people. We're really no different than the people then. And when Paul and, and the early church lifted up the new covenant, there was no intent behind their words that the old covenant would be completely left behind. But rather the covenants of the scripture build upon one another. They don't replace each other, but they are layered and build upon one another. Uh, someone has taught that, you know, sometimes it's kind of like uh, when you refinance your house, uh, you know, and your new mortgage replaces the old mortgage. That's not really true. They're, they're layered and they build upon one another. When I began seminary, Dr. Lewis Blady uh, in one of my classes asked us, he says, how many of y'all are married? And, you know, a number of us 
held up our hands, and he says, okay, so you have entered into a covenant with God and your husband or wife in the covenant of marriage. He says, now, now how many of y'all are planning to be ordained? Okay. He says, so, so when you're ordained, you're going to enter into a covenant with God and the church. He said, but remember, the covenant with God and the church does not replace the covenant you have with your wife. Do not forget your husband or your wife, right? I mean, the, the covenants are layered. They build upon each other. And, and yet the people took what Paul was saying, and, and they misconstrued it. They misunderstand it. They begin to pa- uh, circulate rumors around him. And so as he goes into the temple and he begins to teach in Jerusalem, uh, the crowd becomes angry, and someone stands up and says, Fellow Israelites, help. This is the man who's teaching everyone everywhere against our people our law, and this place, the temple. More than that, he has actually brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Now that last part, there's absolutely no evidence there's any truth at all to that. So uh, just as he was facing opposition in every place he went to, uh, he comes back to Jerusalem and there are people who are willing to get up and make false statements and twist his meetings and other to oppose him. And, and because of this, uh, people begin to gather and a riot begins to begin there in the temple. Now right next to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, literally adjoining it, is the Antonian Fortress where the Roman garrison was uh, stationed. And the Romans, looking over the wall into the Temple Mount, saw that a riot was beginning to happen. And so a detachment of soldiers is, is sent into the Temple Mount to grab Paul out from the middle of that, both to prevent a riot, but also to protect Paul. So they get Paul, they bring him back to the Antonian fortress, and and as they're beginning to take him into the fortress, Paul says, wait a minute, would you let me address the crowd? Really, you just, you know, almost started a riot, and now you want to address the crowd. And so they let him. He stands on the step of the fortress, and he addresses the crowd, which actually doesn't calm anybody down a whole lot. But it tells you something about Paul, doesn't it? I mean, he's been plucked from the midst of what could have been a very dangerous situation, and his response is not just to go and hide. His response is to turn right back around and make a witness of faith. The Romans now, after Paul finishes, are afraid that that, uh, he's just not going to be safe at all in Jerusalem. And so they take him to Caesarea Maritima up on the coast. And I believe y'all went there. It's an amazing archaeological site. It's an amazing feat what Herod built there. Um, But they took him there and he's held in prison there for two years. And and while he is there, uh, he's brought before Felix, who is the governor, uh, the Roman governor of the time. Uh, And and Felix says, okay, so so tell me why you're here. Uh, And Paul makes a witness to Felix. Now, I'm just going to touch on this as I go through it, but I want you to hear this because it's the same witness he's going to make to Agrippa, the same grip, uh, same uh, uh, that he's going to make to Festus, the same witness he makes to the churches in Galatia and in Greece and everywhere he goes. Uh, he makes this witness, and if you want to write down the, the reference, uh, you can read the whole thing. But he makes this witness where first he talks about who he is as a Jew, uh, trained in the Fer- as a Pharisee, uh, educated, zealous for the law, and how he began by persecuting the followers of the way, the Christians, and that that was how he started off. And then on the road to Damascus, how he encountered the risen Christ and, and was struck down and blinded by the light and didn't know who it was and, and heard uh, Jesus saying, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth whom you are persecuting. Uh, and then he says, well, what am I to do? 
And the Lord, Jesus, said to me, Get up and go to Damascus. There you will be told everything that's been assigned to you, uh, you to do. And so he gets up. He goes blinded to Damascus. And there in the house on Straight Street, uh, the Lord sends Ananias uh, to him. Ananias lays hands on him, prays over him. He regains his sight. And then Ananias says to him, The God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear his own voice. For you will be his witness to all the world of what you've seen and heard. And now, why do you delay? Get up, be baptized, have your sins washed away, calling on his name. Paul's going to make that same witness everywhere he goes. He's going to talk about who he was, how he met Christ, and what had happened since then. He's going to repeat it over and over and over. And we have all these words of Paul. We have all these, this theology and these arguments and all these kinds of teaching that he leaves us. But at the time of his life, this, this piece, this witness that he gives, is probably the most important thing that he ever spoke. Because you can always argue with teaching and theology, right? You know, somebody says, well, I read this, or I studied this, or I heard somebody say this, and people can argue about it. Well, I don't think that's right. This is it. And we can argue back and forth. But when somebody says, this is what happened to me, I mean, when they're eyewitness account, this is what I saw, this is what happened to me, this is what I experienced, all you can say is, well, I don't know, but I mean, you can't really argue with it, Right? When Paul stands before the people and says, this is the story of my life, it's not debatable. It's his witness. That's what he says. I wonder how, how, many of us, how many of us are prepared to give that kind of witness of our own lives. When my daughter was in uh, Australia at Hillsong Leadership College, one of the classes she had required her to write a three-minute elevator speech about her witness, her testimony. So uh, she had to sit down and write something that could be given, like you know, when you're on the elevator with somebody going up and down, or when you're standing on the train platform waiting for the train or uh, for the grocery uh, checkout uh, in the line at the grocery store. And, and you had to be able to share your witness in three minutes. And she said, I, I, I don't know how to do that. I've never done that before. And I thought, well, that's true. I, you know, I grew up in the church, too, and, and, and nobody ever asked us to do that either, you know, I mean, to, to write it out. But she had to, to write out her witness, be able to do it in three minutes, and then she had to give it to the professor, and she had to give it to the class, and then they all went into town. And she had to do it on the train platform and in the grocery store and on the street. I'm wondering, how many of you could do that? How many of you could do that? I mean, how many of you could, in three minutes, just answer some basic questions? How and when did you become a Christian? What led you to become a Christian? How have you experienced God working in your life? And how has being a Christian positively changed your life? Because, you know, we can go out and spout theology, and we can spout arguments, and we can do that all day long, and people can argue with us. But if it's the story of your life and how you encountered Christ and what Christ has done in your life, that's non-debatable. It was the most powerful thing that Paul spoke. It's the most powerful thing that we can speak.
So Paul gives his witness to Felix. And Felix, who was rather well informed about the way, the early name for the Christians, adjourned the hearing with the comment, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he ordered the centurion to keep him in custody, but to let him have some liberty and not to prevent any of his friends from taking care of his needs. After two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, since, and since he wanted to grant the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So he, he's in prison, but it's, it's not really you know, a horrible kind of situation. He can still see his friends, and people can visit with him, and he can still t- teach and send things out. Uh, you know, he's still allowed that kind of contact. But he's held there for two years for his protection. And, and then Festus takes over, and Felix leaves him in there, and, and Paul's brought before Festus. Uh, and again, Paul gives Festus his testimony. And, and at the end of that, he says, If I'm wrong, and I have committed something for which I deserve to die... I'm not trying to escape death, but if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can turn me over to them. I appeal to the emperor. And you notice if, if there's no, nothing wrong with me, you can't just release me back to that crowd because he knows that crowd will do him harm. He says, so I appeal to the emperor. It was the right of every Roman citizen to appeal to the emperor uh, and, and go to Rome for trial. Now, the, the emperor's court was not necessarily the emperor himself that was there, but it was his court. And so they had the right, every one of them, to go to Rome and and to be in trial. And Paul, both for his own protection, but also because God has told them, told Paul, that he's supposed to finish his ministry in Rome, Paul appeals to the emperor. Because, you know, if you have to go to Rome, why not make the Romans take you? He just basically outmaneuvers them. I mean, that's what he does. I appeal to the emperor. So Festus then invites King Agrippa, uh, the Jewish king, to come and to hear this Paul. Paul gives his testimony to Agrippa. At the end of that, Agrippa says to Festus, this man could have been set free if he'd not appealed to the emperor. In other words, he, he really is innocent, but he's appealed to the emperor, so what can we do? He's got to go to Rome. So from Caesarea, Paul travels to Rome. Now, he's going to board a ship over here in Caesarea, right over here, and he's going to kind of coastal hop along here and over here to Crete, and then there's the big jump over here towards Malta and Italy. In these days, what they call ships, we would probably call a boat. It's much smaller than what we think of as, a, as an ocean-going vessel. And, and because they're small, uh, they don't handle really uh, rough conditions at sea very well and frequently go down. So they tend to stay fairly close to the coast. So if the weather gets bad, they can run into harbor pretty easily. Uh, they don't usually sail through the worst parts of the winter. So as they leave Caesarea and they sail around the coast here, they come to Crete and they're getting ready to launch for this long open water stretch. Uh, Paul tells the captain, you know, it's late in the year, we're behind schedule, we probably should stay in Crete for the winter. And the captain says, no, I think we can make it. So they set sail out into uh, the open part of the Mediterranean in the middle of winter. They encounter a fierce storm. Uh, the ship is, uh, you know, very much in danger of going down. Everybody's terrified. And, and doesn't it just sound like a lot of other stories you read in the Scripture, right? You know, you got Jonah and the whale. Uh, you got the disciples on the Sea of Galilee. You got Paul out here in the Mediterranean. Later on, you're going to have the Wesleys on their way over here to the colonies. And there's always this recurring story of being caught in a ship in the middle of bad weather at sea. And as they're coming in here and the weather's bad and everybody's terrified, Paul has a vision that assures him that they're going to be okay. And so Paul, the prisoner on the ship, reassures everybody else on the ship. Okay, guys, listen. It's going to be okay. God's let me know this. 
you know, we're going we're gonna to shipwreck on the Isle of Malta, we're going to crash, but everybody's going to survive, which is kind of a, you know, good news, bad news kind of thing, but, but nonetheless, you know, you're going to make it, guys, and he reassures the crew, and sure enough, they come to Malta, uh, they shipwreck on the shore, the ship is destroyed, but everybody on the ship survives, and they spend the rest of the winter in Malta waiting for the weather to improve. And so as they're there in Malta being shipwrecked, being still a prisoner of the Romans, what does Paul do? He starts another church in Malta and he testifies to them. So even in the time of of shipwreck and persecution, he's still giving his witness and building up churches. From Malta then in the spring when the weather improves, uh, he takes uh, ships on with another different ship and they make his way up to Rome. And he arrives in Rome where he is uh, put under a house arrest he stays in a home that the Christian community has uh, leased for him. And uh, it's today is where the uh, Church of St. Paul Regula exists on that site and um, in that place. And, and again, it's kind of a loose house arrest. And so he continues to be able to see people and to send letters out and teach and so forth from this place. He's here at least two years. And at that point, the book of Acts ends. So we don't really have the tail end of the story. Uh, in the scripture. Uh, What we do have is historical records and we do have the tradition of the church. And there's some speculation then about what happens at that point. That maybe there was a preliminary hearing where uh, he was released on his own recognizance of some kind or another or or maybe he stayed in this place for the next couple of years. We're not really sure. From some of the writings that he did uh, there is uh, the suggestion that actually he was released at some point and that there was a fourth missionary journey which is not recorded in Acts, where he went from Rome back to visit some of the other churches, the churches that he'd already started, uh, and kind of made this loop and came back and spent a, a couple of years on that journey, or that possibly he did this journey and a fifth journey to Spain. Uh, we don't really know any of that. There's no way to, uh, no historical evidence to prove any of it. But, but some, there was a period of time there that we, we really are not sure about. Uh, he may have journeyed or he may have been in Rome. Where it's just it's all speculation. Uh, but nonetheless, he continues to write. He continues to be in communication with the early churches. Around the end of that time, um, there is the great fire in Rome. Um, <clears throat> the fire destroys a, a huge amount of the city. Uh, thousands of people are homeless. Thousands of people die. A rumor begins to go, which may or may not have had uh, truth to it, that Nero had had his soldiers set the fire. Nero wanted to rebuild a large part of the city of Rome. The people of Rome were unwilling to pay for that. And so the rumor began that Nero set the fire so that they would have to rebuild it. Uh, When that went out, all the folks who had lost their homes and who had lost loved ones became uh, understandably outraged about it. And Nero then decided he had to take action. So he blamed the early Christian community. He said, oh no, it wasn't me. It was those Christians. They set the fires. And thus began this period of rather intense persecution of the early Christian church. Uh, this is the period of time when people are gathered up and thrown in with the animals or they're hunted down. Uh, it, it's really a, an intense time of persecution of the early church. And as part of that, Nero decides to make an example of both Paul and of Peter, two of the known leaders of the Christian church. So Paul is uh, brought to uh, the Mamertine prison and he is put into this cell. Uh, for the last uh, months of his life, and from here uh, is writing uh, to his uh, colleagues and his friends. Uh, 
a day before his execution, he is brought to a location which is now marked by the church of Santa Maria Scalacili. And that building that is right next door to it that you see in the corner is the building called Church of the Three Fountains where Paul was executed. There's a really gruesome story about the fountains if you want me to tell you that later. Not good for kids. Uh, but, but that's where he is executed. He's beheaded. And then later his body is moved to burial at the location marked by the Basilica of St. Paul. In those last moments of his life, <laughs> those last months, he writes to his protege Timothy. He says, as for me, I am already being poured out as a libation, an offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. From now on there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. I mean, even as he is sitting waiting his death, you hear the confidence. Now, my time's over. I've done what I can do, and, it's, and, and I'm done. But I know even now that, that on that day God's going to give me the crown of righteousness. And there's a confidence in his voice that to me at least echoes the great affirmation that he makes uh, in Romans 8. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I mean, to be able to hold to that kind of statement of faith, not simply in the face of persecution, not simply in the face of imprisonment, but in the face of execution, speaks volumes about Paul's faith and commitment. And for us who live in much less trying kinds of circumstances, I mean, can we have even a little bit of that kind of commitment that is speak out for Christ in the world? I'm going to give you some homework. I'm going to ask you to write your three-minute elevator speech. Uh, you've already had Sunday school class this morning, so uh, if you want to share it with your small group, you can do that, or you can come back next week and do it. But I I'm going to invite you to just respond to these questions. You know, how and when did you become a Christian? Uh, what led me to become a Christian? How have I experienced God working in my life? And how has being a Christian positively changed my life? Just, just be able to say that and, and share that in a short speech. And then share it with people you know and love. And then share it with someone that you don't know. But that God has led you to. I mean, Paul makes this powerful statement of faith all through his life. Not, not simply in the teachings, but, but in the very living of his life. And in the witness he gives about Christ alive in him. And I am challenging you to think about if you can make even a bit of that kind of a witness to the world so that in us 
the world might see the living Christ. Let's pray. Almighty Father, we come and we ask that you give us just a bit of Paul's courage, that you give us some of his commitment and some of his dedication. And we know that we don't face anywhere near the kind of, of persecution and opposition that he faced. And yet we confess that we are often reluctant to share our faith with anyone. So come and pour that courage into us. That we might be bold enough to share what it means to be your follower. What it means for you to live in our lives. And how you've changed our lives. So that like our brother Paul, we might be able to show the world who the living Christ is in the midst of our lives and the lives of others. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.